Funkateers, Bootsy here to bring the Truth and Rhythm family's attention to Funk Not Fight. Yeah, this is a call to action. We spread hope, not hate, uh, to gain satisfaction throughout our communities via the music uplifting unity. Uh, Peppermint Patty, tell us a little more. Thinker is our partner. Thinker music, that is. So please check the link that's scrolling across the bottom, click it, and submit your music. Let's all funk, funk not fight. fight. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. Brought to you by funkandstuff.net, this is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg.funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm honored to welcome to Truth and Rhythm, jazz, soul, pop, and rock woodwind player, keyboardist, producer, composer, and arranger, Larry Williams, a member of the 1970s jazz fusion band Sea Wind. He branched out to work on hundreds of diverse recordings that included many of music's most famous and talented artists. Those included Quincy Jones, Rufus and Chaka Khan, the Brothers Johnson, Minnie Riperton, Natalie Cole, Patrice Rush and Roberta Flack, George Duke, Earth, Wind & Fire, Joni Mitchell, Michael Jackson, Sheila E., Jody Watley, Al Jarreau, 
Joe Sample, George Benson, Santana, Stevie Nicks, The Crusaders, B.B. King, Ray Charles, Tina Marie, Aretha Franklin, and the list goes on and on. Wow. Larry, thank you so much for joining the show. How are you this evening? Thanks, Scott, for having me. I'm great, man. Good to see you. Good to see you too, Larry. And where, are, where you? are you? Where's your base here? Oh, my base is uh, Laurel Canyon, Los Angeles. So I'm up in in the old stomping ground of many, uh, I've been here about close to 20 years now. I would kind of want to live up here and we're sort of sort of being out of LA, but but in it at the same, obviously close to everything except the airport, not particularly, but uh, doing less traveling these days. So that's where I am. Yeah. Well, I was out there uh, just a couple of months ago. I hadn't been there in a long time as we were talking. I'm from there originally. And my sister's out in Camarillo. So I was visiting uh, not too okay. far from you. No. Yeah. Yep. Up the coast there a little bit. I like Camarillo. Yeah. So thank you again, Larry, for doing this. Much appreciated. I know viewers are going to love it. You've uh, touched so many pieces of great music and projects over the years. It's just unbelievable. We definitely don't have time to get into it all, but hopefully we can at least uh, get into some good stuff uh, in the time that we do have. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. So now you're from Kansas originally, I understand. Um, how did you, how and why did you gravitate toward music as you did? So I'm from Overland Park, Kansas, so which is a subur suburb of Kansas City, Kansas, and Missouri. It's, of course, they're together. Um, and my father ended up there was a musician in childhood um, and was always a, a very good saxophone player. And he became my uh, my idol, my hero. And I wanted to be like him. And uh, we, I have an older brother and younger sister, and we all begged him to play instruments. And, uh, you know, he started me on the clarinet when I was seven. And I graduated, not graduated, I kept, Took to that well, and then I went to the saxophone, which which is really what I wanted to play. Um, I focus, and then the flute, and then the piano came in there because I was dabbling around. And anyway, my father really set me on the course to to be able to attain what I've been able to attain because he was plugged into so many good teachers. He was a fantastic teacher too, and uh, he was like the tenor guy in Kansas City played all the shows with everybody coming through from Tony Bennett to Mancini to car shows, Al Hurt, he would play clarinet with, and Al wouldn't travel with Pee Wee Spitalera and, you know, like that. So I grew up all around that. My dad was the saxophone player at the Kansas City Chiefs band for 35 years. And that was church on Sunday, starting in 61 when they moved from Dallas, Texans. They were the Dallas Texans, yeah, and became the Kansas City Chiefs. So we would go there every Sunday, sub-zero weather. You know, you're, you're literally on a metal mouthpiece. Your, your mouth might stick to the mouthpiece. So it's ridiculously cold. And uh, that's, you know, that was, that was life in Kansas City, which is, as you know, a rich tradition, particularly of jazz from, with Charlie Parker and Cal Basie, et cetera, Jay McShann all of that influence. So I, I was really fortunate to, to be born. And I, I say this, you know, I got a passion for it early. I felt like I was a nerdy kid, a little kid, small, a little smaller, had acne, 
you know, all that stuff. I wasn't a great athlete. I was a good ball player for a baseball player early on. And then clarinet, you know, I became good on it quick and started winning competitions. Ridiculous thing, competitions in music. But that was the Midwest and our education system. It served me pretty well to get my instruments together, you know, and then it just progressed from there. And I ended up at music school. Uh, mm-hmm. And Indiana University was uh, was the the place where I where I ended up having the, probably the most impact on me after like these great teachers my dad set me up with like first you know, the first chair in the Kansas City Phil was my clarinet teacher his brother happened to be the first flautist he taught me flute my dad sent me probably the most fortuitous decision to this great arranger pianist because I was screwing around the piano, just messing around. And he said, you know, there's never enough good piano players. Why don't you learn theory and arranging from this guy who was, his name was John, was John Elliott. And he was Pat Matheny and Bob Brookmeyer's teacher and had a system, counterpoint system and a whole theory and jazz and classical. And he said, look, you have some facility after about three months. He said, you have a little bit of facility. Why don't we make half the lesson uh you know the the classical repertoire and half of a jazz I said sure whatever you think john i mean i'd heard him play and knew he was he was a master and he just really opened up my ears and set me on a on the path to be able to to realize what i was hearing harmonically but couldn't translate it to instruments i wasn't one of these guys born with perfect pitch that it came easy to find stuff. I could read anything pretty early after two or three years of playing instruments. I could, I was a good reader, sight reader, whatever, and uh, understood music as my theory. My dad taught me that, but I just didn't have natural ears, and I it was so frustrating to me. I had to really work hard to open my ears. I'd do a lot of transcription of solos. But this teacher showed me how to listen to the music and hear the bass first, which dictates all the harmony. And that became fascinating to me, voicings and how to how to place instruments in in the, you know, inside that voicing with for for whatever ensemble you're working for. What uh, you know, styles and genres were you uh, attracted to early on, say in your late teens? Well, you know, I was playing the classics, which were, which was just a way, of course, of, you know, the the repertoire on each instrument, I would play the classical stuff would be how I was learning my instruments, right? The written page. But early on, and I can't really say when, somewhere in my early teens, Maybe even before that, I just remember my dad standing up and playing a solo with a big band and just this rush of like, like, you know, and, and getting and people were clapping and ooing and aahing over what he was playing. And I understood the power of that, not 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 just the appreciation, but it 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 just piqued my it touched me in my soul is all I can say. And, and I'm like, wow, he's making that up right on the spot without a net you know it's a live gig and that that became like 
wow. Once I started listening to the records and it was through big bands, I guess that, because that was a big, my dad was, a, came out of the big band era and uh, he played with a lot of good big bands. I think he subbed for Woody Herman's band once, you know, he had to kind of put his dream aside because he had a family early and got off the road and raised us in Kansas city. He was traveling all around with a lot of bands played in, during world war two in the uh, Hollywood canteen. Uh, I think he did a Bob Hope gig and a lot of, you know, he, he, I think he auditioned for Lawrence Welk when he was out here, didn't get it, which was a plum gig. All the studio guys wanted that gig because it played, paid a lot of money and, you know, you're on TV and you, you, it was a good, as, as corny as the stuff was, those are fine musicians. All those guys are, it's funny that one of the drummers was Paul Humphreys, who went on to play with Zappa, uh, the main drummer um, with, with Lawrence for for years. And the joke was that I could take Lawrence Welk's band, bandstands, LW, and make it, I'd have my, you know, I could use them on my band. So anyway, that just the power of improvised music was what was what was fascinating to me. So I guess I guess after my dad, um, the, the the first one was Sal Mystico, who is a kind of an unsung tenor saxophone giant to a lot of us guys. He was just a burning tenor soloist. Uh, with Woody Herman mostly is where I know him from. I actually saw him play live in a parking lot. They would come to a, to a mall, mall and set up and play in the parking lot, basically outside a mall. Amazing. And we also saw him with Count Basie, a rare gig. And uh, Sal was, anybody interested, YouTube, Sal Nistico. Um, not Nest, Sammy Nestico is the great arranger, but... Sal just had this articulation thing, rapid fire. Caledonia was just like at warp speed when he would count these things. One, two, one, two, three, four. He would tongue. He just had this amazing thing. And it was just, just knocked us out. So went from that quickly through next the next ones would be Stan Gatz, Paul Desmond, the regular ones. And then I got to train in my high school years, John Coltrane, Charlie Parker, of course, along the way. And uh, and then by college, it was Joe Henderson and Sonny Rollins, of course. But I was I was always I mean, Coltrane was was the North Star. And then and then quickly. For peers, it became Michael Brecker, who happened to be at Indiana University, where I went to music school. He had been there the year before me. Of course, I'd never heard of Michael Brecker or or Randy at that point, but who had already recorded in New York. But I got I got to school. I was there on a full scholarship, um, a clarinet scholarship. And I played the Mozart Concerto to get in because I my dad didn't have money to send me out of state to it you know it was the world's largest music school and when i when i got there you know, before i even started classes somebody pulled me aside i was in a practice room and he said listen to this and he played a tape of michael brecker playing doxy with a drummer 
and a piano player, no bass player, about 10 minutes solo in a room. So this, this is from the year before. I actually stopped playing. I thought I was going to be the world's greatest saxophone player before I heard that. And I went, okay, I'm in Indiana, Bloomington, Indiana. I've just heard this guy who up until that point is, you know, I'm thinking this is a peer, right? I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of hubris is what it was at that point. Thinking I could play as well as any, I was going to be able to play as well as anybody, which is a great thing to have, right? It wasn't necessarily confidence, but I felt this was unlimited what I could do. I heard this guy, and I, I stopped playing my instruments for a couple of weeks before school. And I thought, well, I'm never going to attain that. So, what am I? What am I doing? What? This is my skewed thinking. But it turned out I decided. What I decided was, you know what? I'm going to make playing a lot of instruments at a really high level my thing. It was already kind of what I was doing. You know, I was playing. I was a pretty good piano player then and I was a pretty good I was a very good clarinet player and saxophone player and flute player um so I just as said I'm gonna I'm gonna take this on and play all these instruments not a jack of all trades master of none I want to master all of them this is what I attempted to do so I was there on a woodwinds degree I ended up studying the double reeds as well which I I didn't continue um it was, it was just too much. And, you know, I played piano in the second band there. I played alto and tenor in the first band, or it was a vice versa, I can't remember, under David Baker, who's a world-renowned jazz educator. Really great for me. He really uh, helped, helped me a lot, um, and a lot, so many people, with improvising and just inspired us. And we... we you know, traveled around with his band, with that band, the Indiana University Jazz Ensemble. This is 1968-69. And, and it's there that I met Jerry Hay, who became my best friend to this day. He was a great arranger, trumpet player. And we ended up living together and starting moving to Hawaii and starting Sea Wind and all that stuff. So there you have it. For Sea Wind, correct? Just I'll tell it a compacted version. Several guys, one guy, his name was David Lowell, great saxophone player, ended up playing with the LA Express, replacing Tom Scott. He was in Indiana. He moved to Hawaii. I don't know why. He fell in with this contractor who loved musicians. He started calling guys, look, there's gigs over here. We, they need musicians who can read and play, you know, the shows there. Not just Hawaiian shows, but all the, the acts that come in from all over the world, they need they need a band, you know, big band or, you know, uh, rhythm section, whatever. One by one, all the guys, it ended up being 20, 30 guys from Indiana ended up going there and living there. I went there on a summer to do a summer gig. Jerry had already been there. Kim Hutchcroft was there as well. We called each other, Larry Hall, another trumpet player that played with Seawind. It's just a bizarre thing. So we ended up living there on a kind of a well, you got a six night a week gig when you get off the plane in Hawaii. Well, I didn't know anything about Hawaii other than uh, pineapples and bananas and beaches. 
you know, when I <laughs> from Kansas, I, I love swimming. So I figured, well, what, what a great thing. So uh, that's how we got there and, and then met some locals there that would happen to be Bob Wilson, a drummer who had been in the Navy, Ken Wilde, the bass player, whose father was in the Navy, and Pauline, a bong, she was her name, or her maiden name before she married Bob. We started playing together, and that became Ox, which became Sea Wind. So our intent wasn't to go there and start a band, no. It was not. It was just to go keep practicing, you know, by this point... I mean, I was at Indiana, I was practicing eight, 10 hours a day and only taking music classes. Wasn't interested in the degree, really. And uh, they eventually, after two years there, Jerry and I were touring with, with like in the whole Midwest with Mancini, Henry Mancini. We played with Glenn Campbell. We did, they took the orchestras from Indiana and Illinois orchestra big band you know and i mean what a kick i'm playing uh piccolo on baby elephant walk with henry mancini tony not tony at that time um glenn campbell andy williams you know it's like we're getting paid and ultimately the classical department didn't dig that i was taking a week or 10 days off and going making money and they said you know you're going to have a hard time getting into an orchestra if you keep doing this and i said well i I don't plan on being in an orchestra man i'm you know i had been making money playing music since i was 10 my my brother's band my dad kind of set us up with charts and everything we played ballroom dancing so i knew that i wasn't going to be in an orchestra It's, it's funny i was playing in the indianapolis symphony as a utilitary utility guy just playing uh oh i played uh soprano sax on what was that bizet piece and uh played piccolo played some flute maybe bass clarinet i might have played you know just uh i'd go up there and do certain concerts and I really knew I was playing an orchestra as well for part of my scholarship. You know, they had 12 orchestras there. So it, it was, it was tremendous training, you know, under conductors. And, um, but I knew I wasn't going to be a classical musician full time. Just it was like, I was, I was listening to, to all the stuff that I dug. And that was, that was my passion then. And with that, that I followed. And that's where I heard rhythm and blues music. James Brown was the first thing I heard was in Indiana. Happened to be that I was on acid too. So that helped <laughs> because I was a little bit of a snob towards popular music at this point. I was only listening to classical music and jazz, really. That was it. Just had little interest in anything else uh, because I was trying to be the best musician on bo- in both of those get my instruments together really. And, and, uh, you know, it was just this whole world. I went from sort of being the big fish in Kansas, in Overland park at my high school. And I left after high school. I actually went to one year of New Mexico state. It's a long story. I won't get into where I was really the big fish. They paid me to play solos with the orchestra and the jazz band. I taught uh, high school kids and I met professors that got me to Indiana there that one year. They said, you need to go to this school. You're too good for this, this place. 
So that they helped me make that Mozart clarinet concerto, that tape, the the uh, piano teacher there who became the dean of the School of Music in Indiana helped me do that. So, you know, it's it's just a a series of events like happened in so many of our lives just led me one thing to the next. And I don't, I don't look at it. I mean, I look being born into that family with my dad and getting that passion is really what changed everything. So, you know, once my ears were opened up to funk and I was listening to blood, sweat and tears and horn bands and stuff and going, wow, well, the saxophone can fit into that stuff in the rock. And that's kind of cool. You know, didn't really wasn't really into rock. I started kind of digging the Beatles a little bit, what they were doing <laughs> there. So, uh, cut to Hawaii, and we're playing all kinds of music, of course, with all kinds of people. Sammy Davis Jr., Tony Bennett, who come through, and Mel Torme. We were his big band. Well, good, great experience all the way along. But we we would all get together those guys that became sea wind and just jam, you know, and there were never, there was never another good piano player around. So I ended up playing piano a lot, which I have to comp for five solos. So like 10 minutes of me comp on, and then maybe I, then I play a solo. Then I have to to comp again, but at least I'm playing all the time instead of standing around holding a horn, waiting to solo. (laughs) Pretty funny. You became like an MVP of sorts, right? Well, I, I I became I was filling a function that nobody else was there and was able to fill. So that became sort of the way I was focused on really playing piano with funk and jazz, and we we to kind of keep that core together. We started playing in clubs to keep it alive. And of course, you're doing covers. We're doing Aretha covers because Pauline could sing the shit out of that shit. That's how we heard her. We heard her singing uh, Respect, you know, in on Kona, the island of Kona, where I was doing a gig, a ranging gig for, for a guy in Vegas. Another long story. A guy who wanted to go to Vegas, never got there. We walk in, Bob and I, and we hear this voice, and we look up, and it's this four-foot-six little girl, be gorgeous, and couldn't believe the voice coming out of her. I mean, just slaying Aretha. I mean, Pauline is a, a magnificent singer. And uh, so we just said, boy, let's let's see if she wants to be a part of our thing. And and she didn't have the, the jazz pedigree, but she was open to it. And, you know, we could tell she could sing anything. And she could, as it turned out. So that was kind of just faded that we there was no original band in Hawaii other than, uh, than uh, um, I mean, when we started, other than Hawaiiana stuff, it was all, you know, for the tourists, Don Ho and Dick Jensen and the stuff we, we played. Uh, you know, everything that would come from the mainland would be, there wasn't any jazz there. So it was just no, such a strange fucking thing. That no no had. ukulele involved. <laughs> no, no, no ukes. No ukes, no nukes. Um, so it was just, you know, this is early 70s, 71 when I got there. And by 73, we were touring as Ox. 
We came to the mainland. We went to Alaska for six months and played every night, seven-hour gig, six nights a week, you know, no sun, three months of the year or whatever it was, a month and a half. And we're rehearsing every day. And we're playing our original stuff, too. We even started playing, like, impressions, John Coltrane, in this club. And they they didn't, they didn't care for, for that except – the black crowd started coming in. They started making money. Now the guy was racist and he would have pull his gun out. The, the owner, it was just, just amazing shit happened at every, it was kind of the wild, wild West in the, in Anchorage, Alaska in the early seventies, the pipeline was being built. And I got, I got a lot of stories there, but, but the key was we were playing together and wanted to keep that together. And we eventually got off the road and started writing just original material. So look at we're going to bite the bullet. We're going to live with Bob's parents, basically in Phoenix, Arizona, Glendale. Bob, our drummer, Bob, great, who is the main songwriter of Seawind, and just rehearse that. We got a gig one night a week at the Century Sky Room, which was the black jazz place, and they loved us, and we could hone our stuff. And you know, I would, I was listening to Chick Corea then, and I wanted to play like Chick. That that just blew me away when i heard chick korea return to forever i just first time i heard him was in indiana on on a record sweet rain with stan getz and i just never heard anybody play time like that so i was already trying to figure out how is why does he sound so different than every other pianist that's ever lived i mean really just what is it besides it's well clearly it's the voicing it's his touch and it's where he puts the notes in time. And I I figured out that his version, the way he swings is not, it's not like, you know, when you talk, this is, I'm going to generalize here. When you talk swing, you go da 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 His is like, it's sixteenths that I, I call it squared off. They're more even. They're not they're not machine like, but they're closer to to even than da 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 with accents that make the make the swing. And I and I started emulating that and transcribing it and playing at that time, going, you know, you really need to to know where, like for me with a metronome in those days, you know, today you can you got a metronome on your this is pre-internet, obviously. You know, it's just records. I mean, vinyl records. I'm putting the needle on and I'm writing down and I'm playing it back. And then I got a tape recorder, you know, an old reel to reel. And I could just wind it back, put it down to half speed so I could hear if I really wanted to slow something down. It took a lot of Coltrane and Michael Brecker and Joe Henderson solos off and Chick piano stuff and Herbie and Keith Jarrett. Um, and that that's how I opened up my ears to be able to, you know, and then playing those covers of James Brown and Tower Power, who we ended up, you know, opening for in Hawaii. And um, so we go back to Hawaii after this, this time and, and we're playing our original material. And we get a gig, uh, an after hours gig. You know, five nights a week there. It might have been six. And there's nothing like it. And all the musicians would come there. And whoever was in town, like Joe Sample, stopped in. 
Jeff McCarl from to uh, Steely Dan was in town. As far as Zappa's guys all came in, um, Tower Power came in, uh, Cannonball Adderley heard us, you know, Billy Cobham, um, Quincy's guys all came in from, from Hawaii would come and they would start telling people in LA, hey, there's this band in Hawaii. It's pretty, it's got some interesting stuff. It's like knocked us out, right? It's, Finally, uh, a guy that was Harvey Mason's, I, one of his best friends, told Harvey about us. And Harvey, I, I don't know if he got a tape. I don't remember. Harvey called us and said, I want to produce you guys. And that's when we decided to kind of make the move. We were, we were getting shit from the Hawaii Musicians Union, which we were in to play the regular gigs because we weren't making union scale, which is pretty high then, because we're playing original mu music, you know, and we didn't care. We weren't, we weren't a, a Hawaii Vegas show like the rest of them with the two drink minimum. We were just at, a, at an after hours place. So they kind of made it impossible for us to play <laughs> there. Maybe they did us a favor. Well, they did. So we came to LA and within that first year, I think playing the baked potato, in North Hollywood, Harvey had gotten a record deal with CTI and everybody had come in there, Lee Rittenauer and David Foster and well, Quincy heard us and all of, you know, started using us on records. And that's how, that's how we got going. You know, it's just, I mean, it's nothing that we sought out to have a band. And I did, I was always thinking I would be a recording musician would be what I wanted to do. You know, and when I was a kid, it was the tonight show. I thought that was the pinnacle when I was 10 years old. Oh, that looks kind of cool. I played saxophone there. And Johnny looks over every once in a while. And, and my dad liked Johnny Carson. I would watch it with him. And, and I knew, and he knew some of the great players in that band, you know, Snooky Young. And I mean, he knew who they were. He didn't know them personally, but. So pretty pretty funny to to that that was my une, very unevolved idea of what a you know but I I fell in love with recording the laboratory of it and that look at I was never a big guy on wearing a tux and standing up in front of people you know I mean I could do that of course it was part of being a musician. But, you know, or the presentation of this or getting on a mic and this is not my thing. You know, I loved music, sound of it. I loved playing with guys. I loved it, gals and guys and the interacting and the music and digging in. What's what's this groove about? So that was that was where, you know, I could go in and dress like anything. It didn't make any difference if I'm green, purple, black, white. If you can put it on tape, you know, that's it. It's there and it's going to live as long as that's going to live, you know, that whatever format it's in. And that just, to me, was was the was the holy grail, was to, like, put something on there that, that really touched people in a different way. And I got to take all my skills and on all the instruments and – you know, I was like a a waiter. You know, I 
come in because people would call me because they started hearing me. You know, a lot of it was early on was the, the the horn section. Kim and Jerry, Jerry Hay and myself, Kim Hutchcroft. And then we quickly we knew Gary Grant from Hawaii, who was became the second trumpeter or the, the other trumpeter. And then we found Bill Reichenbach in L.A. very early because he could play anything that Jerry could write, which is saying something, or I would write, and bass trombone. So that people would hear that, and then they would see me play keyboards with Seawind, started hiring me. And, um, you know, I got to use, to bring what I thought was cool about when they asked me, you know, what do you hear? I would always try to, if it could, if it could be a little weirder, I would bring that. I say that harmonically or, you know, some different notes. When Prince asked me to play on, well, I was asked by the studio technician to play on uh, Sheila E's Glamorous Life. Prince just said, give me a saxophone player. And I show up there at 10 o'clock at night on a Thursday, whatever the hell night it was. It was just a regular session for me. It could happen any time of day or night, but it's a little unusual. Get a call a few hours before. Um, so I go there and he's telling me, okay, I want you to play. Cleared everybody out. It was just him and me. Uh, Listen to this track, which was The Glamorous Life, and which is all Prince at that point. It's drum machine, synth, and, and guitar. Uh, synth bass of course and he says uh, what kind of parts do you hear here and I said well I hear something like this and I played something and he said that's cool why don't you double triple that so we did the which is kind of what's going on there but I played off of it with some little fills and then there was a solo in it first of all he's got me playing like more out of tune, he said. I want it to be wilder. And then he says, now in this solo, I, I don't want it to sound like anything you've ever heard. Like, that I've heard. Just, I don't, I don't remember the exact words, but it couldn't be weirder is what he was saying to me. It couldn't be. It was like, wow. Not many people say that to you on a pop record. In fact, I can't even say it's ever been said to me since, but there was nothing. So I'm what I started up pretty quickly. I played some kind of, I said, what I'm thinking is he doesn't really mean it. He wants, you know, junior Walker, King Curtis, which is most of what they want. You know, and they want some fun clicks, right? Soulful fun clicks. That, that was what everybody kind of, <laughs> wanted in the studio so he says no it's more 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 out more bizarre oh, great i get all the way to honking and squealing and combinations of intervallic stuff which is what i've been working on since college you know free jazz i call it a multiphonics overblowing the horn just and if you listen to the club thing particularly the club mix there's a six or seven minute version of that with a, a lot of extended saxophone stuff i'm just playing like i'm going for it not in the key which was e flat that he wrote it in i'm i'm all over the place playing as out as i can 
and uh, it kind of became a call, calling card card for me for for the saxophone for my for a lot of stuff I did. Uh, a lot of people called because of that, and you know didn't know I could play the saxophone like that. And then the same thing happened with uh, Al Jarreau's record. I got a call to go and replace Chick on Spain, his classic. Uh, song Spain which I idolized and Jay Graydon the producer called me and said he'd had a personality clash and they they he was going to erase Chick because it wasn't a good solo and I was like are you sure and he said yeah come over now and play a solo and play the Rhodes part and that's what I did and I was like okay Jay he had heard me play it with Seawood we were we played it for quite a while um and that became a calling card for me on synthes synthesizer and keyboards. It was like, you know, I became a soloist guy that could do that. And then I was also the guy that could do strings and, you know, do programming. And for synthesizers, I got heavily into the synths early on and had a, all the old analog stuff, you know. So I was trying to do it all. And, you know, when I look back, it's kind of crazy because. Let me jump in if I could, Larry. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, what was your first project with Quincy? First project with Quincy was. Was. Uh, I heard that, I believe that record, which was 77 or 78. Quincy's record. Now I get them mixed up sometimes. The either the one before or the one after was the Wiz, the soundtrack for that. Now Quincy had heard us and hired hired us for that thing was at the first time. One of those two was the first session. So ease on down the road, ease on down, ease on down, ease on Bill down. Reese, you know, yeah. Bow 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 or slide trumpets that Jerry, Chuck Finley, and Gary played, and that. That's our section on that. And we did all the horns on that Quincy soundtrack. And so Quincy was knocked out. He had Jerry was his arranger, you know, and Quincy's an arranger too. So he loved the way Jerry voiced stuff. And he liked, he liked the precision and the, the, the way, you know, the soulfulness of our, of our section and that sound. And that became, that became a big part of Quincy's records for, forever you know i mean on to the michael jackson which off the wall was was i believe the next record we did with him if not the brothers johnson blam where i played a lot of keyboard stuff too still proud of that that stuff in fact jerry quincy called up jerry and said hey you know we did all the horns on this brothers johnson record blam I need a keyboard player because George Duke's my guy, another one of my idols who I learned to play synth from, him and Jan Hammer, but I mean listening. Uh, George was on the road. And he said, I can't get George. Who should I get? Jerry said, get Larry. Quincy, I don't think he really heard the band. He heard tapes of us maybe. He said, he can play keyboards like that? He said, Jerry said, check him out. Uh, and, you know, Jerry doesn't, doesn't do that <laughs> you know jerry doesn't he doesn't recommend people because they're his friends you're you know so 
I get in there and it's a lot of Moog solos is what it was, um, you know, and I could see where it, it was just stuff George would tear up. You know, so I was on the spot. I mean, this is serious groove music, you know, with I think it was Harvey Mason, Lewis Johnson, Thunder Thumbs. The groove was just killing. And I'm thinking Quincy's going to sh- tell me everything to play. And, you know, I'll learn how to play. That's, that's my but, favorite album by them, actually. It's it's a great record. I, I really I still it still holds up. I mean, there's stuff on that I laugh at because I, I hear some mistakes I did that Quincy left on there. I mean, just he let me really he made me feel like, you know, I learned so much about what a producer, great producer should do. He just inspired me to get the best out of me. He didn't tell me anything to play. He said, what do you hear on this groove, Mr. Cool? And he ended up giving me some publishing on it, you know, a piece of the song because of the group, the, the little uh, Moog filter part I came up with. I played, became part of the groove. Now, I thought, well, shit, that's going to happen all the time. and I'll be wealthy, you know, because that's publishing. Not that I really even knew publishing was where the money was at then. Well, it never happened after that. So I thank Quincy to this day just for, you know, to get to play keys and be in the section, the horn section on, on his records, you know. So it became a thing he would call me for certain things to play keyboards on, you know. A lot of times to fix stuff after a lot of guys had done it. It's not because I could do it better. He liked the thing that I had, you know, my part of my groove and this, my co- concept of sound. I mean, I'm pretty sure he used George Duke again. And I don't ever remember stretching out on any record with Quincy like I got to do on that one. It's just a, 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 a wrinkle in time, maybe, you know, and that that there's some long uh, Soul Patrol, Midnight Soul Patrol. I think I played, played clarinet on that, saxophone, maybe flute, and those long synthesizer solo. So that that's... Quincy just, I consider him my mentor, you know. And how, how, how many other musicians typically would be in the studio with you when you were doing that? All, all that stuff that I was doing, I, in fact, I don't think I ever did a rhythm section thing in with the rhythm section. It was always overdubbing. So there were no other musicians typically, unless somebody was waiting around to come in, maybe a synth guy Another synth guy who had his rig there, like Mike Boddicker, you know, or maybe JR was there because he had done a drum track. It was just hanging out. Or But uh, when the horn section was doing it, there weren't any, you know, musicians around for the most part. It was just Quincy, Bruce Sweden, the, the studio techs, and uh, maybe Quincy's assistant. And, you know, if Michael it was Michael's record, it was him. My brothers Johnson were there a lot. Michael was there a lot. And we did stuff, not all the time, but you know he dug dug me in there. Um, and what about the Rufus records? The Rufus records, you know, were a lot of like like when Rod would do a tune, when Rod Temperton would wrote, wrote a tune, and Quincy let Rod do his the song. I mean, Rod was a master arranger too. He would have Jerry do the horn parts after, um, you know, but he had lines that he wanted. And when I would arrange for Rod, it was the same thing because I became 
Rod's kind of partner for a, a good span of years there, where we did Saida's record, uh, we did uh, Patty Austin record, we, we co-produced that, that, we did Running Scared, the movie, the soundtrack. Um, that it was, was Herbie a record of, too, Light Me Up. I, uh, the Herbie record, which is all horns, is all I did, but with that. Um, so, you know, that was what that what that session was. To say it was a golden era of recording would be, I mean, you know, you could even say the, the 50s were for some guys and the 60s were too. So I don't think, but there was an explosion through the 70s and 70s into the 80s of just, you know, record. There was just so much recording going on with so many people. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.